You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. We are in the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Exodus. We are systematically working our way through this book. Um, Such a rich demonstration of the person and the power of God amongst a people, his own people, that he's rescuing out of the grips of Pharaoh. Right, we've seen the stories, we've seen the movies, we've heard about it before, but firsthand we get to see God Uh, saving his people out of bondage. And so um, we are in Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse 1 through uh, Exodus 12, verse 30. And so if you've been with us, um, the way that Exodus reads, it's it's a story. And so sometimes it's it's more scripture than other weeks. But uh, this week, it's about a chapter and a half or so. And this week, uh, a dear man a mentor to us all, who God has used on this island for his glory for many years. Um, We would call him a legend. Butch Pereira is going to be reading the scripture for us this morning. Butch, come on up. It's true. You know Butch. Yeah. Uncle Butch. He's going to be reading the scripture so you can follow along, and then we'll jump right into it. Love you, man. Come on. Okay. Let me find my Bible. I think it's going to be... Behind me also. So, Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt, Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her hand mill. And all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, 
This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not, eat any, do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat, made, eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop 
and dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that blood, uh, that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Heavy. Thanks, buddy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we ask God that you would be with us as we dig into your word this morning. And God, would you give us understanding to it of your heart and your reasoning and and your sovereignty and your mercy and mixed with your justice and your judgment. We We see all of this this morning. And so God, give us understanding, give us insight into your word. And we ask God that you would anoint our time, that you would use me to communicate your truths to us. And Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you apply these things? Show us the richness of what you're trying to show and teach and demonstrate to Israel, but also to the entire world for generations to come. So God, would you be with us? Uh, we just ask God that you would have your way. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the past few weeks, we've been examining the plagues. We've taken the last two Sundays to look at a few each Sunday. And we've seen a really dramatic display of God's justice and his power coming upon an unbelieving and disobedient Pharaoh and Egyptian nation. And all this, the purpose of all of this has been to free God's people, his firstborn children, he describes the Israelites as, uh, out of slavery and into communion with him. The end goal of God with all of this, with all of this harshness, is to free his people and to be with his people ultimately in the promised land. And God, through Moses and Aaron, over and over have attempted the diplomatic way. Like, they've tried to talk. They've tried to talk it out. They've tried to reason. Um, But nothing's worked. 
They've been the mouthpieces of God to Pharaoh to end this national slavery. The people of God have been enslaved to a tyrant called Pharaoh for 430 years. I mean, it's been a terrible injustice. And in that time, at the beginning of Exodus, not only is there harsh labor and brutal workloads, but also there's been a governmental decree of genocide. Pharaoh himself decreed that every firstborn, every Hebrew firstborn would be killed. It's an absolute nightmare what's happening. And unfortunately, none of the diplomatic ways have availed. And the contest between Pharaoh and Jehovah, the Lord, has almost ended. An abundant opportunity has been given to the king of Egypt to repent of his wicked defiance. Warning after warning and plague after plague has been sent. And Egypt's ruler is still hardened of heart. And God has to respond to this injustice, and he does it in a very powerful way. This is what the plagues have been. And today we see the tenth and final plague, um, which finally will release the children of Israel from this generational slavery. They would finally be able to make their escape or their exodus, that's where the book gets its name, out of Egypt toward the promised land where they would eventually settle. But today we see the plague of the firstborn, and by far, this is the worst. It's absolutely the most devastating, and to be honest, it's really hard to comprehend. It's really hard to read and swallow and, and like even just grasp that this happened. But prior to this, we need to, to remember that you know, not all the plagues had affected human life actually in any way. God was more confronting the gods of Egypt at the time that they were worshiping. Um, things were getting uncomfortable for Egypt, right? Like frogs were everywhere. Gnats were everywhere. Their water was turned to blood so they couldn't drink it. Things are uncomfortable. Things are bad. But things are definitely not this bad. Like one of them, death of the livestock, um, that was threatening, right? Like every, all of our food source has, has been killed out by God to try to change our hearts, but nothing thus far has been this bad. If anything, they've been shots over the bow, so to speak. Warnings after warnings after warnings from God, like, let my people go. But by far, this is the final blow. This is the death blow to the land. This is the final sentence of God's justice and his wrath poured out upon a sinful, rebellious people. And it's important that we remember and we kind of understand and grasp God's heart in this, his love, his mercy, and his justice. Throughout all that's happened thus far, thus far until chapter 11, all the conversations, throughout every plague that's, that's you know, bringing forth God's justice against injustice, there's every time, almost every time, there's been opportunities of mercy for Pharaoh to take. Like Pharaoh, or Egypt in this case, in each scenario, didn't have to experience God's wrath and justice. This wasn't just like, God, I'm going to do it just because I'm mad at you, and you're just going to, I'm going to try to teach you a lesson. No, every single time, especially this plague, could have been avoided. It, it's not, you know, like, like parenting. Like, I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and like, we live off warnings. Like, you live off like, hey, if you don't do that, this is going to happen. And then, you know, depending on your parenting, how many warnings you get and how bad the consequences is going to be. But it's, it's, we, we do this as parents. 
But maybe, you know, it's like one or two or like maybe if you're like really don't want to give a consequence. It's like three warnings, right? Like that's overkill. Extra grace for you. But you, you, you give warnings to try to avoid a consequence. This is the 10th warning. This is way, way down the line. God over and over and over. After a series of conversations, after a series of like increasingly harder plagues, the con- becomes this, this really heavy consequence, but it's because over and over again, there's been disobedience and rebellion and hardness of heart, and they've been steadily increasing. And God has been very clear that it's only going to get worse if they don't give in. But we have to remember, and we can't forget that. If we, if we miss out on God's motivation, then, then we'll, have trouble with, we'll have a lot of trouble with this passage. But we have to remember that all of what is do, as God is doing is actually motivated out of love. God loves his people, and believe it or not, God loves the Egyptians also. Even in the midst of their injustice and their wickedness, God still loves them, and he desires all of them to flourish, to, be, to, to know them. He doesn't want to do any of this, God, but God is just. He's just, but he's merciful. He's, he's a just God, but he's also a loving God. He isn't soft or unfair when it comes to sin and injustice. He's both. He is completely loving and he's full of mercy, but he's equally just as just. And I think we can get behind and support a loving God. Uh, I don't think we really have a problem with that. I don't think much the world does. Like in our worldview, we may even expect to experience the love of God in the world. Don't have a problem. I don't think anybody's against that. But I do think that we have and always will struggle with the judgment of God. We all have a hard time with that. God's love, he's good, everything's good, he's going to bless us. But the moment that God is just and inflicts judgment or justice in the world, we have a problem with that. We struggle with that, even in like our passage today. But the thing is, God's judgment on the world is God acting justly in the world. See, judgment and justice are are interlinked. When God acts in his judgment, he's acting justly. When God acts to make the world right, this is actually a part of God's love. His love and his justice are are intermingled. Um, There's this guy, I don't really know how to pronounce his name, Nicholas Walterstroff. I don't know, maybe. If you know it better, then go with that. But this is what he says about this. God loves the presence of justice in society. Not because it makes for a society whose excellence God admires, but because God loves the members of society. He loves them with a love of benevolent desire. God desires that each and every human being shall flourish. What the Old Testament writers call shalom. This is why God loves justice. God desires the flourishing of each and every one of God's human creatures. Justice is indispensable to that. Love and justice are not pitted against each other, but are intertwined. God's love and justice, even in the forms of judgment, are not opposites in tension, but are two sides of the same coin. Sometimes we don't think that. Sometimes, like he said, we think they're in opposition. The justice or the judgment of God, he can't be a a loving God if he's doing this. 
But no, he's a loving God, but he's also a just God. And this is what is happening in this 10th plague. In conjunction with this 10th plague, God also does actually give a way of escape. There's a rescue option here. There's a way to not have this happen, and it's in the form of what we famously uh, have, have named, the Bible named, but, but we say it, is the Passover. The Passover. This is the Passover, is the rescue plan of God for the 10th plague in the book of Exodus. And what Uncle Butch just read is a detailed description. There are instructions laid out to everyone. And if you do these things, if you follow these instructions, you'll avoid this last plague from happening. And we've, we've read that down, down to the detail, right? You get a pure spotless lamb and you look at it for a couple days and the way in which you prepare that lamb and cook that lamb and eat that lamb down to the things you eat with the lamb and the time, everything was significant. Everything was purposeful and had meaning, but this was God's rescue plan. This was his way to not experience his, his, his wrath in the 10th plague. Follow the instructions of what I'm telling you. Obey my word, obey what I have, and you will not have to experience my wrath. For those of you that open something and don't read the instructions and you're like morally against it, this is where you would not want to do that. This is the time where you, you, you need to read the instructions and listen to what God says and, and not just go for it. But the most important thing, the most important thing that the people were told by God was to take the blood of that pure, spotless, innocent lamb and use hyssop, like a little branch, and then put the blood over the doorpost of your home. And if you did this, what would happen is, is God, via, you know, like the angel of death, some people say, would come by through the night, and whenever home had the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over that home. That's where the name comes from. That family, that people, whoever was in that home at the time would not experience the wrath or judgment on that home. But whoever did not do that, who didn't obey God, whoever didn't have the blood of the lamb would suffer the wrath and justice of God. Their home, their firstborn, would experience the terrible 10th plague. And what we see is probably one of the craziest black and white scenes that any city or nation maybe has ever seen. Because God did exactly what he said he would do. So simultaneously in the land, okay, so there's millions of people living in Egypt at the time. There's two and a half million Israelites, and there's equally, if not more, Egyptians, right? So this is several million people that are being affected. Simultaneously in the land, there was a mourning that was unlike anything ever heard, understandably. But there also Sorry, for everyone that did not do that, right, they experienced the plague. For everyone that did do that, there was rejoicing. I know that sounds weird, but because they were freed from generational slavery. 430 years. As long as they could remember back, their ancestors had been in slavery, and in one moment, God freed them. 
because that's what happens next. In that moment, this is the final, this is, this, is, this is the pivotal time in the story. And so simultaneously in Egypt at their time, there was incredible mourning and there was incredible rejoicing. And it was marked by the Passover. And the Passover is actually the start of the Jewish religious calendar to this day. And we're going to talk more about that next week, but this was supposed to be celebrated year after year as a way of reminder that Israel would never forget what God had done for them. He would never forget that he saw their injustice, he heard their cry, and he did something about it, and he freed a people group that became a nation. Year after year, they would have the Passover dinner. They would prepare the dinner in the same way. I mean, Orthodox Jews still do this. They celebrate the Passover. And even down to the herbs meant something. It had to be bitter herbs with lamb to remind of the bitter treatment of the people in Egypt over the course of the centuries. So year after year, what Orthodox Jews still do is they're to inspect, sacrifice, and kill a lamb in the same way. This is a really big deal for Jews and and the Israelites leading up to now. More on this next week, though. But here's why this is so important to, to us specifically, like I don't, I don't know who's Jewish in here or who practices, but maybe not many, maybe not if any. This can, this can be really out of sorts, and that happened thousands of years ago. Cool, it's a Bible story. Here's why this is important. This is the connection that we need to, to, to make. So that innocent Passover lamb that was killed in place of a guilty people to save them, that, that's what happened, is pointing to the perfect, innocent Passover lamb in the New Testament that tells us is Jesus Christ. All of this in Exodus is pointing to Jesus, who died a guilty sinner's death to pay the price that God's justice required, right? In order that we sinners might be saved, might be passed over by God's judgment so that we could live. Right? The reason why the Passover story is so important, it's not just that it saved a nation at one moment in time, but it points to the Lamb of God who died to save the entire world. Emoji would be like the blowhead right now. You know, you know I don't, I'm not good at emojis, but you know that one. Face, mind blown. Like, it, it, it's all making sense. If you remember even John the Baptist... John the Baptist was like this really weird guy that lived in the wilderness, strange, ate bugs, wore camel's hair, like weird guy. But God used him as the forerunner of Christ, as the herald to tell Israel at the time that Jesus was coming. And what happened was is that John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River, and finally Jesus comes on the scene, and, and John the Baptist, weird as he was, his job was to announce the coming of the king. And what he said, John 1, chapter 29, he said, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John the Baptist was saying on the Jordan River is he was talking about Exodus language. He was saying what happened when God spared the entire nation of Israel is happening in the person of Jesus to the entire world. 
I mean, that alone is like the definitive moment that changed the world when, when John the Baptist just called out, that's the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The New Testament would describe Christ in this way, right? Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, For Christ is our Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. And as we look a little bit into, into our Exodus text today and unpack a few things, we'll see that um, there's incredible stuff for us as well. I've got two points. I'm not just starting. This is like, I'm getting close to be done, okay? So don't be worried. I know that sounded like, wow, he's just, there's two points now? So don't, no. Number one, God offers salvation to all. The offer of salvation from death was for anyone who would believe. It wasn't just for the Israelites. If the Egyptians did this also, they would have been saved, Jew or Gentile. And that's important to note. It's not because of any virtue or excellence in them that the Hebrews were spared. Yes, I know that they were God's people. I know that he loved them. But they, too, had sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um, one of my favorite commentators, Arthur W. Pink, says, The Egyptians and the Israelites were alike. Both in nature and practice, they were sinners. There is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3. It is true that God had purpose to redeem Israel out of Egypt, but he would do so only on a righteous basis. Holiness can never ignore sin, no matter where it is found. So it wasn't their genealogy, it wasn't their ceremonial observances, nor their works, which secured them deliverance or salvation from God's judgments. Like, it was their personal application of that shed blood by that innocent lamb and that alone. It was because of that sacrificial death of that innocent lamb and, and that, that blood from the lamb that saved them. All of them deserve death. But again, by means of substitute, that innocent lamb was killed instead of them, they were saved. The sentence of death was executed because it fell on an innocent victim. That which was without blemish, the lamb, died in the stead of those who had no righteousness in them. Guys, this is true of us. There is not a more potent or relevant truth. Right? The salvation from death that God offers us in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, is offered to all of humanity. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people. And there is no people that because of our nationality or economic status or moral virtue has a one-up or like that can just be saved because we're a good person or we're better than the rest or we were born in a certain place to a certain family. We, like the Israelites and the Egyptians, are all guilty. And God's justice demands that our sin earns death. For the wages of sin is death. That's what all of us have accrued. That's the debt that we've done against God. The only way to pay our sins is, the, is a price with a life. It's our life or somebody's life. We've got to pay. We've got to pay for our rebellion against God. And Jesus, this is, what's, this is why the gospel is good news. Jesus is the pure perfect, sinless, innocent lamb of God that paid our price 
for us. Guys, like, if you've ever had any sort of debt, which I'm sure we all have at some time, if someone pays your debt, like a financial debt, if it's a huge one or some miraculous, like, you get some money and you pay it, it's, like, unbelievable. Can you imagine if the debt, though, was your life? In order to pay this debt, i got to die. That's it. There's no other way. But someone steps in and dies in our place so that we wouldn't have to. This is something that is, is out of this world. It's unfathomable. The Bible tells us that Jesus' sacrificial death was this big world, word excuse me, called propitiation. It's a Bible word. But propitiation, in its simplest form, means a sacrifice that satisfies. So when the Bible says that Jesus was the propitiation of our sins, it means that his sacrifice satisfied the justice and the wrath of God on our behalf. He took it so that we didn't have to. A.W. Pink goes on to say, Jesus' sacrifice is a proprietary satisfaction rendered unto God. It is to placate his holy wrath. It is to appease his righteous hatred of sin. It is to pacify the claims of his justice. It is to settle the demands of his law. God is light as well as love. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. To bolster that even more, the book of Hebrews speaks at Jesus in the Old Testament, and, he, and, they, and they link them. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Under the Old System, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciousness from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. It's incredible. It goes on. It says... For without the shedding of blood, though, there's no forgiveness. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once and for all as a sacrifice to take away, just as John the Baptist said, the sins of many people. He'll come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting for him. Guys, this is, this is the biggest deal that's ever happened. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened. And the last point, I know that was a long point, last point, is that for the Israelites, they had to do more than just to intellectually believe in this. Like, okay, yeah, I heard the, yeah, okay. But it was also that they had to take it for their own and receive it and in faith for their lives do something about it. So that was in the form of like, I believe God what you're saying, so I'm going to do what you're saying. I'm going to kill this lamb and I'm going to prepare it and I'm actually going to physically take its blood and put it over the doorpost. I believe and I'm going to receive what you're saying. In other words, it's not enough for us 
to know that there's a precious blood of the Lamb of God that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's not enough to just kind of like, yeah, heard about that. That was a good thing he did. That was a good thing Jesus did. But a Savior provided isn't sufficient. It has to be received. There's got to be faith. And faith is a personal thing. We have to exercise faith in this. We've got we to take the blood and shelter beneath it and we've got to place it in between our sins and, 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 our, and the holy God. And we have to rely upon it as the, soul, the, the, the sole ground of our acceptance in him. This is what this looks like practically and tangibly. It's surrender. It's surrendering to God's love and his mercy and his power and judgment. It's coming to grips that God is the only one who can save. Jesus said that. John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only one who has the power to give and take life. And this was happening in each home in that night. There was a trusting. There was a belief. There was a, there was a blind trust that had to happen. I mean, these were, this is not like an easy slam dunk. Like, oh my gosh, like plagues are getting really serious. And this is what God says is going to happen. We're going to have to trust that God is who he said he is. And we're going to have to trust our family with these truths. This is what's happening here. They had to come to a place of trust. And there has to be a moment or a season where each of us, this happens to us. Like we've got to come to this place where we not only believe, we trust in. We surrender our lives to God. We, we take stock and we believe and receive that God has offered his son in the person of Jesus Christ. There has to be like a personal acceptance to it. Because deliverance, salvation, is only by the finished work of Christ and by that alone. Not by religious experiences, not by like church membership, or how much we sacrificed, or our works, or our cultivation of character. None of that. It doesn't mean that those things don't matter, but those should, they should be fruit of what God has done in our hearts. See, deliverance from judgment is only done by the finished work on the cross, and we have to trust in that finished work in order to be saved. And that's exactly what we see here in Exodus. So here's the deal. If you're, if you're hearing this today, and you're a born-again Christian, you've done this, right? You've surrendered. You've given your life to the Lord. You're washed by the blood of the Lamb. Your sins are forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice, that, that that's like a big like, amen? Thank you, Jesus. This is what that should do for us that that's true of. You're a Christian, you've heard this, this is me, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. This is what it should do. It should fill us daily with joy and hope to stand on. Like we should be secure in our hope with Christ, of what he did for us and what our eternity is gonna be like. But it also should well up a song within us. Not only should we have hope and joy and something to stand upon, but it should literally cause us to praise God, like daily, that, he, that, that God, through his son, saved us from our own sins. Not only should it fill us with joy and give us a song to sing, but it should give us a story to tell. This isn't something you just hold on to and say, oh, look at this cool present I got. That's awesome. But it's testifying to the world of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for the whole world. 
If you're in here today, and you've been coming here, or maybe you haven't, and this isn't you. Nope, that's not me. I'm not in that camp. I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm just checking it out. This is being offered to you as well. It's on the table. It's yours. The work has actually already been done by Jesus on the cross. As hard as, hard as it believes, because we're so in a performance, like I got to earn myself, I got to get the, I got to work harder and try harder. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus did it, believe and receive. Surrender, give up. And I want to plead with you. I'm going to plead in the midst of so many opinions in the world. Right, and things you got to do, and sides we have to pick, and boxes we have to check. The world we live in is crazy right now. Like, it's really hard to just be a human in it, let alone love God and think of these things. But the only thing that truly, really matters at the end of the day is what a loving, merciful God did through his sacrificial death of his son upon the cross. There's not one person that this does not apply to. God did all the work, and all we have to do is believe and receive. I personally would love to talk to you. We have the prayer team back, to, back there after service. They would love to talk to you. There's people next to you that know what to say. Talk to them. But thank you, Jesus, that you are the Passover lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this very vivid reminder that from really the beginning of time, th thousands of years ago, across the world, that you, your goal, your purpose with humanity has always been the same. You have not been persuaded by the world changing and, and humans. God, you have always desired to be with, to love, to commune with your creation. And man, we've really messed that up. Sin's messed that up. Our own hearts, rebellion, wickedness, our own selfishness has caused us to not experience that. And out of your love and your justice, God, you sent your son. The greatest display of love and justice the world has ever seen. You loved us enough to give what was most pre precious to you, your son, but to, but to pay for the debt of sin. You were just and you were all loving in the same moment. God, I pray that we not only would be reminded, it would cause us to now worship you, and it would remind us how good you are. You paid our debt for us, but it would cause all of us to just stop striving and think that we have to do this thing on our own. And then we say, God, I fully trust in you. I trust my life to you. I surrender. You're Lord. I pray that all of us would be able to come to that place today. And as we enter a time of worship now, that we, as we sing these lyrics and, and, and look at these words, and as we sing to you, that they would be truths coming from a changed heart by a loving and powerful God. So God, we give you this time. We ask that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.